Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast. I'm Armin, the person in the name, the Armin Show. Glad to have you on here. What is this episode about? So I did an interview with the authors of The Elephant in the Brain, who are Kevin Simler and Dr. Robin Hansen. And this interview is up on my blog, I guess my interviews blog. My name, arminshervanian.com slash interviews. Same website as my podcast, but instead of slash podcast, slash interviews. And they're all text. So this one's up. It has five questions with each author that I asked. There are different questions for each author, so ten in total. And they go through a lot of the concepts in the book. Now, the book is about the elephant in the brain, which is the selfish undertone behind what we do. It's not usually presented publicly, but it's underneath what we do. In this interview, I included material from across the chapters of the book, and some of it expands on the book. So it's not necessarily about the book, but taking the material and expanding on it or connecting it to my own, something I'm curious about. So this episode, I'm just going to go over the questions. Here we go. So my first one, I asked Kevin, if people look to the boss or leader when they end the meeting, if you end the meeting, does that push you towards becoming the leading person in a situation? Because now it's you're setting things up on your own time. And he said, probably not. It's not really changeable in that way. Because if it was, then everybody would just do that and become the leader instantly. So it's not gameable, but uh, if you are able to be followed by people, then it may actually, over time, lead to such a thing. But you have to show that you have the basis behind what you're trying to do. Or else people will think, oh, you're trying to lead the way, you're not the boss, and you're unreliable. And they won't do it. So, probably not. You can't just cheat the system like that. My next question was to Dr. Robin Hansen. Are our hidden motives becoming more known year by year? Because we have technology. Technology is showing who we are one by one. Because you can't hide as much. Every year we get less able to hide. And he said, sometimes tech makes things more visible that we're hidden. So, soon we'll be able to read facial expressions. Maybe long in the future, he didn't mention this, but we can read people's thoughts. I don't know. But it'll be harder to deny the messages we're saying. He said, even with that, we'll probably adapt other ways to hide our motives as much as applicable. Because we've done this for a long time. I'm with that. That is quite likely that the methods of hiding will still be there true on that now the next question back to kevin in the building i said since putting out loud and frequent mating calls is an honest signal that is differentially expensive so if you don't have the energy how would i say if you are not one of the people who easily would be able to mate it costs you even more to make mating calls you have to do more. You have to reach out more than the average person. So it's differentially expensive 
which motivates toward only the successful making the calls. And I asked, is it is someone who has situational and experiential leverage for making these calls better off doing as many as they can? So like if somebody's in an area where they can, you know, reach out to a lot of the opposite gender or they run a club or something like that, should they be doing that? And what he said to this was, it's hard to say, depends on the risks and rewards, but you have to weigh the costs. And when you keep doing something, you run up against the law of diminishing marginal returns. People don't usually do as much as they can of anything. And then if if it doesn't cost much, we'll see people do it a lot. So valid points here. That means it's a very good point you brought up. You don't really see people doing as many as they can of anything, Put as many push-ups as they can, as many calls as they can make, whatever it is. We don't usually do that. That's not a typical thing. So if you are a person that does something in some category, boy, you're already setting yourself apart. I like that part. Second, he said, you run up against the law of diminishing marginal returns. If you keep doing the same thing over and over and over, you'll get some results, but now you're not going into a new field. You're stuck on in one category. If you just keep repeating the same, you'll improve in that category, but you can only go so far. You know, it's like that quote, what, you got, what got you here won't get you there. You're going to have to do something else, something bigger, something different, Reach out to people in a different way. Be more bold, whatever it may be. Great points in that one. Yeah. Also, great authors about the questions. They were happy to do a different one or adjust the response. So that was cool. So onward we go. On the next one, I asked Robin, with all the teams in society, political groups, religious groups, sports team groups, is that very, does that make it easy to manipulate these groups? Because you just pander to their thing. And he said, no, it's generally hard and expensive because so many people try to manipulate. So if everybody is trying to do that, there's going to be some protections in place. And most people will not succeed at breaking through the group or adulterating it or using it to their own advantage, which makes sense. If, if you could, you would. It's kind of like the boss thing. If you try to just outdo them on the meeting, everybody would do that. So we have things in place against these methodologies. Next question I asked Kevin. I, I mentioned on a YouTube interview, which was with Kalia, in fact, that I'm not about the thing, whatever it is. The In this book, it talks about that educational system, healthcare system, or what happens in a festivity, or how people, why people laugh. Because I've known it's like an after effect, and but you have the undertone underneath it. So I'm never really about the other layer because I see it from the underneath layer. I asked, so because of that, is it best to go with the flow publicly and then do your own stuff on your own? And he said, personally, yes. He goes with the flow. He doesn't really question things in a public way because usually it doesn't work out positively. He said it ruins the mood and doesn't really benefit anything. So he likes people that uh, voice their skepticism and he's fine with them and good with them. But he can also see that it's not so advantageous to do so in public settings because it's lost with most people. You make a point that uh, just bugs them. You go against the flow and it just bugs them. And then they just don't like you. You didn't actually improve the situation. 
I asked then Robin, I said, if someone doesn't play the laughter game by laughing when the average person would do so to seem more, you know, likable, calm, will they be looked at as dangerous, unlikable? Is there only a minority of people who are able to mutually bypass these response patterns? Obviously, my questions are not typical questions, but this is the stuff that came to mind. He said, if you won't laugh naturally with people you suggest to them, you don't either feel safe around them, you care too little about them to bother showing them much of anything, or you see them far beneath you and would lower your status by interacting with them on a roughly equal level. So these things probably would not transfer or resonate well. If you tell people you don't feel safe around them, that's not a good sign. Uh, but let's say that's not the case. The other one is you don't care too little about them to show that much. So to that, the laughter is like a show of graciousness. Without that, it's like an insult. And then the third one, seeing them as far beneath you, well, that would be insulting to the other person. They would think, gosh, you won't even make this display. Now, it seems like it doesn't have much merit, but I think for the majority, this makes sense. When there's a moment of some sort of laughter or shared connection, if you don't do it, it's going to look like you're insulting them. So for those people, you want to join in and do that. Not with everybody. Maybe you'll find some people that match and you both don't need to be so outwardly gracious, but innerly not. But for the majority, good idea. I know the questions I ask are quite niche, but these are the things that came to my mind. This is my perspective and stuff I would check on. I asked Kevin, in the way that our minds are modular with many systems coming together to make decisions, are we part of the larger modular system with every human being on the planet? You know, like a cyborg, they've said a, a huge brain. He said, yes. And we have our communities, companies, professions, all these groups that have their own agendas. And how much agency do we have as a big planet or uh, planet-wide super organism? How much can we do as humanity to cooperate? It's a good thing he brought up. Do we cooperate on a high level across the countries? We do a bit. We have some coalitions and countries, like specific countries by themselves, but we don't really have global cooperation as of yet. So that's not the most efficient. But where there is cooperation, like within a country, there's more focus and sharpness. Yeah. Another now. I asked Robin. One large issue I see in public commentary is people don't provide alternatives to their answers. They annoyed at something, but they don't have an alternative. And Robin does have alternatives. He has them on his website. So I said, what gave you the impetus to come up with these? Is it just a few people that have the energy to come up with another way to do things? And this nice response, we expect to see variations between people's responses. Uh, we're gonna see more people who put in less effort and very few that put in more effort. He said he's weird and unusual, which explains why he does weird and unusual things, meaning putting in high levels of effort where others don't. So that's nice. We have people like this. We should be very glad for people 
who are out putting out this is something I have been for and I try to represent of myself outward doing and energy even when it looks like it would be inefficient because in the longer term it makes sense and maybe it's not just about uh, impressing others next one I asked Kevin can someone else's conspicuous consumption be looked at as a form of weakness like they're trying to make up for lack within so when someone's showing off in some way and they're doing it on purpose is that weakness because they would have been fine somebody else would have been fine not showing off this person needed to did they need to and he said I guess you could look at it it that way but he doesn't look at it like that he says it's a good it's a necessary strategy for the hierarchy and getting ahead he says many of us are conspicuous consumers in some way or another and it's key to have some substance there's people that have mostly flash no substance like Gary Vaynerchuk says he says the it's about the steak not the sizzle so if you don't have the steak well it's not gonna last and Kevin said he likes to for his own friends uh, focus on the people who have the substance in there which is a nice feature you can only be flashy for so long before it looks goofy and nobody likes to look goofy next one and this was the last question I asked Robin in the same way he so he likes view quakes which which are things that change up your world view he likes those and I compared it to punctuated equilibrium where things just suddenly out of nowhere shock you into a, a new way of looking to something and it can change your view how you respond to it this is a good thing without challenge we are just an amoeba right so I asked him does your desire for things that challenge you come from it feels too comfortable when you're not challenged or you know too much and he said this is an interesting answer the information value of any it's in the it's a detailed answer the information value of any news is proportional to its scope and inverse to the initial probability you would have signed assigned to that news so you let's say you have a news article right the value of it is opposite to what you would have thought the value of that news was and matches the scope of that news so when you have a result of wide scope lots of information value large size to it large effect but uh, when you're shocked like oh my gosh what a punchy story usually low value it'll disappear within a minute an hour a day so this is why he likes view quakes these have a large wide scope and they're not things that just look um, you know sensational so that's why he likes them and he also likes to see changes to the current world order that's why he has alternative institutions on his website I think that's pretty cool having options for another way to do things I much like by the way that was the last question I do like these two authors their websites their articles the stuff they post it's consistent they are representing what they're talking about and even in the answering of my questions there's a outgoing nature of rationalness they're happy to respond to things accept criticism work with other people it's nice to me this is what friendly looks like it doesn't look like what 
is publicly presented as friendly. It's different. But to me, this is friendly because it's accepting of rational thought. Involves discussion. I don't see this much in public discourse or things that are popular. They don't have these elements. These elements are boring in the public media. But they're lasting. These two guys and the concepts they present will be here. They're not even that out there. They're just alternative ways to do things. Or what's the problem with this? Or looking at it in pieces. Accepting criticism. So we don't see much of this often. Because critical thought is not the majority. It doesn't happen. You can't do it at a public protest. You can't have lots of critical thought being shared. It's more quick response and little little bursts of message so i try to avoid that and i stick to things of depth and these guys represent that which is cool i'm glad to to them glad i'm glad about doing the interview with them and it was nice to read their responses i always really internalize the responses i read them over later I uh, learned something from how they responded to what I said. The way they responded to what I said usually tells me a lot. That's a nice feature. And there will be more. That's all I can say. This was an interview with the two authors of The Elephant in the Brain. We are on the Armin Show podcast. I hope you have enjoyed the answers to these questions and discussion of them. And I look forward to more. Onward we go, and we are out.